Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Traditional Jamaican ska was very much informed by jazz music. But in the 90s, New York musician Fred Ryder, a.k.a. Rocksteady Freddie, coined the term ska jazz and formed the group the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble. How does ska jazz differ from traditional ska? Fred answers this question, and he tells us plenty of stories about his time with the Toasters, the Scofflaws, the New York Citizens, and of course, the New York Jazz Ska Ensemble, who are still going strong to this day. Aaron, do you like jazz? Sure, yeah. I don't like jazz. Oh, damn. (laughs) But you know what? Sprinkle some ska in there. I'll listen to it. All right. He likes ska jazz. Yeah. My my niece, uh, her dad really likes jazz, and uh, she told us that she doesn't like man jazz. She only likes lady jazz. What's man jazz? Man jazz is just all the weird angular stuff that's out there, all the like deep stuff. Lady Jazz is uh, Ella Fitzgerald. She's got good taste. Yeah, for sure. First thing I wanted to ask you about, Fred, was uh, there's footage of uh, a tour in Europe in like 1998 with like Laura Aiken, Laurel Aiken um, singing. Uh, I know there's like also interview with Rico Rodriguez, Greg Lee as well. And, and you're in this band. So I'm curious what, what all this exactly is. What that was, was, uh, I mean, the whole video and the whole thing out of it, I'm not exactly sure how that came from it, <laughs> but um, we we were on tour with Laurel Aiken. We were doing like a co-headline thing with him. We did a month with him in the States and then a month in Europe. So um, that's that's what that footage is from. So the, uh, the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble played a set and then the band also backed him as well. Exactly, we did a we did a, a set, and then we would take a small break, and then he would come out, and when, then we would do his set, and we did about a month in Europe, and we did a month in the states. <laughs> you guys had to play two sets. I wonder how long you were on stage each night. I mean, it's a long time ago. I mean, you know, dude. In the end, if the spirit of jaw hits, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll keep playing and playing and playing. So, you know, um, there it was. You know, it was always a good night. We wanted a party. We wanted the people to be happy. You know, so um, you know, it was it was always fun. You know, but like, you know, who doesn't? Who didn't used to sweat at a ska show after it was over? So, you know. What was that like to to play to to back a, an icon like that? 
Uh, it was really fun. I mean, um, you know, I mean, he was a little older, so like we had to kind of try to really take care of him and, you know, make sure everything was cool. And, um, you know, it was just, it was just great to connect to it, con to connect to the history and uh, hang with him. And, you know, it was like culture shock for all of us. And, mm -hmm. um, it was just, um, you know, it was really a lot of fun and, and, um, playing like some of the old standards. It was great to like, really, you know, get inside those and really relearn them and, 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 and get to perform them with him. Yeah. It was an honor. So I want to talk about the philosophy or the, the, the concept behind ska jazz. You coined this term, but ska and jazz are interconnected. Traditional ska is a very jazz influenced music. Sure. Do you want to explain what the difference between traditional ska and ska jazz as you coined it and, and as you play it? Well, you know, I, I did this with Rick Faulkner. We were playing in the toasters. We were on tour with the Scatolites. It was around 1993, 1994. We did a couple of real big ones. And, you know, we were, you know, with the special beat and the toasters and um, a couple of other really big bands. And, um, and we were amazed that these old Jamaican cats, you know, would rock the house every night. So we were really inspired by it. But of course, we wanted to do our own thing and kind of take it, you know, from our own perspective. So, you know, of course, Jamaican jazz was influenced by, you know, um, blues and, and, and all kinds of stuff. But what we did with the ska jazz was kind of get into a couple different concepts. One was... Um, we were going to extend the harmony. So a lot of what those guys were doing was very basic harmony. We were going to add extended harmony, like real jazz harmony. And then other elements that we kind of brought to the table were some of the really fast stuff that I like to do kind of has a punk element to it. Mm -hmm. And um, and then the other point that I kind of really liked, which might be somewhat in sync with them, but I really kind of wanted to get to this. It was like, you know, like, especially across the States, across the world, there are all these, like, band geek kind of people that play their horns and stuff. And, like, they want to be in the rock band, too. And so, like, in the 40s in the States, like, instrumental music was pop music. So part of, like, what I wanted to do with the ska jazz is make it more of, like, a, a popular form. I see. Let's break this down a little bit more. For someone who doesn't necessarily, isn't super familiar with jazz or doesn't know the language of jazz can you explain what those harmonies are that you're you're drawing upon well i mean you know i could really break it down to like you know there are 12 tones in music and you can have major scales and major sounds and you know that's based on like the first third and fifth of the major scale a minor is the first flat third and fifth. I don't know if that's completely a foreign concept to you, but like <laughs> with more jazzy or harmonies, you're extending it. You're going to the seventh, the ninth, the 11th, more dissonance, um, just a little bit more um, grittier kind of sounds. A lot of the Island sounds were just very basic major and minor sounds. A lot of the reggae sound harmony is not really extended you know, like you don't find a sharp 11 or a flat 13 typically, whereas like we were kind of bringing that to the table, really trying to put modern jazz over the ska beat. 
So the, a lot of these extended harmonies, were they present in older jazz, the jazz that influenced Scottalites? Or were, was, was this how it developed over time? I mean, th- that harmony has always sort of been there. I think Scatolites were more influenced by blues and jump, you know, and not so much by, I mean, the, the real, ha- I mean, Roland and Tommy played jazz. They listened to, 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 to Coltrane and they did all kinds of shit. So, I mean, it's all sort of interconnected, but they didn't really bring that harmony into their music. They kind of kept more with a more island, more, you know, major or minor sound, a basic harmony, like, you know, just like three tones in the chord, as opposed to maybe five or six or seven. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of with their influences too, like, like you said, blues and, and jump and stuff is like, and, and like New Orleans, New Orleans music, um, R&B and stuff like that, which definitely not, not pulling from the, those kinds of like harmonies and chords, generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little more basic. That's all. I mean, we kind of got into like, and we also were interested in, in um, highlighting, you know, seminal jazz composers at the beginning, like Mingus and Monk and Miles Davis, and actually, you know, kind of treating their songs with, with the ska beat. You talked about playing fast songs. You can't, you said kind of a punk element, but like how much of it was influenced by sort of the big band era? Cause a lot of that was pretty fast too. Well, the big band era in the sense of for sure, yeah, you had like, you know, kind of jump bluesy kind of feels and up stuff, but also just for sure the fact that it was the dance music of the time. It was the popular music of the time. I mean, back in the 40s and 50s, that's what people did. They would go out and they would listen to the big band and dance. And it was instru- and it was instrumental music. You know, that was popular music. So, you know, part of what like I kind of come back to is like, Hey, if it could be popular music, then why can't it be popular music now? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of an era of jazz. That's uh, like you say, it's popular. A lot of jazz is more esoteric, a little bit more small clubs where people are sitting and, and watching and just listening. Whereas like also the ska jazz and where I'm coming from is like, we're a dance band. Mm-hmm. So even though we're playing this, like, jazzy influenced music i'm kind of happiest when everyone's dancing hmm. in the 90s when you guys first started um and there was like the ska the third wave ska boom thing happening and then there was also the swing thing happening did you guys ever get sort of lumped in with that swing side or did you ever get play shows with those bands yeah we did we definitely played uh like big voodoo daddy and a couple of those guys i think we did a couple shows with them and um you know it's funny how like you know it was like almost like a fad you know it was like this popular thing but it didn't last that long but um you know um uh you know it definitely it was cool though because you know, it was bringing back again some of this old school big bandy swing stuff. I think of um, oh Joe Jackson's album. You know, which one? You know, the one he did with horns. Mm, like yeah. that was r- really good in that in that vibe. Did you feel like there was a difference in the crowds? Like, like a lot, obviously a lot of the ska crowd they were coming at it through like punk ska, but a lot of those crowds were were looking back and understanding the roots. And the, and the music wasn't 
even though it's sort of framed as a fad, it wasn't a fad the way that the swing revival was. And the swing revival actually was a lot bigger from what I remember. Like there was like dance classes and all kinds of stuff. So I wonder, did you feel more of a, like a more engaged audience that knew more about the music when it was ska or swing or what did it always vary? It always varied. And like, it also comes down to also like sort of what you were saying too. It's like, you know, we weren't really playing in little clubs where they're just sitting there and, you know, ready to listen at a table. You know, we're playing in places where people are dancing and hanging out. And so, like, in the end, ultimately, for me, it's it's more about, like, you know, are they enjoying it? Do they like it? You know, music, you know, could be enjoyed on so many levels. And obviously, musicians like, you know, more I don't want to say complicated music, but maybe I don't even know how to put it in a, in the positive term, but in the sense of like, in the end, it doesn't matter. You know, everyone's a listener and either they like it or they don't, and either they think it's cool or not. So, um, I mean, I think it's, it's great when, you know, some of the older figures or, or that, you know, the, the element where people really understand, damn, these musicians really had to work to be able to play like this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like when they understand that, that that's a great thing. Cause today it seems like it's not always like that in the sense of, you know, there's more instant gratification as opposed to like playing an instrument for like 30 or 40 years. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Becoming a master at your, at your one specific instrument. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your um your recording process because I've 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 seen interviews where you talk about the fact that you prefer to record as much as you can live and to do as little overdubbing as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um I I first got totally turned on when I saw Sting's movie um The Heart of the not Sting's movie the harder they did what was the name of the movie it was with branford and kenny kirkland and all those guys and he basically brought the band to like a castle and they like lived there and rehearsed there and then they recorded there and um uh i can't remember their name but um i always was like man that's the way to do it because like you you get everybody like grooving together organically and you're living together and then you know the music comes out of it so Um, for the last few records, you know, I've had everybody come to my house and, you know, if the, if I'm using Euro guys or people from wherever they're crashing there and, you know, we're rehearsing in the house for a few days and then we go to the studio. It's like, um, it's sort of like really taking care of pre-production so that when you go there, you know, it's not about like, what do I play? It's more about having a good day or a bad day. And the whole thing thing about the jazz and the ska is that the element of it that I think is so awesome is that moment where you're just making the music, looking in the other player's eyes and just listening and just vibing. So that's why I don't like to overdub as much. It's like, if you can catch the magic, you know, that, that to me is really what makes it special. And you solos are included in this conversation too, right? Like horn solos, prefer to have them performed with the band preferred exactly because you're like vibing with the band you're grooving with the band you're inspired by the band and you know music isn't supposed to be perfect 
I mean, that isn't to say we don't do any overdubs, but, you know, if you do a take and, and the vibe is there, but you like squeak one note, maybe I'll, I'd be like, you know, it's the coolest thing. Cause you know, <laughs> when music gets, when music gets too perfect, it gets like, you know, antiseptic. It's not, it doesn't vibe, you know, it's gotta have the human element. What about um, the uh, most recent record in the moment? That one seems a little different to me overall. Can you talk a little bit about the the recording of that and sort of your approach to this record? Well, it was a COVID record. You know, um, I, I, you know, like everybody else, I was kind of locked away and I had a lot of time to like, you know, compose and really like really delve into these songs. And it was like more about like, you know, what we were experiencing personally and kind of writing about it. And some of the shit was really heavy because there was a shooting in the supermarket right near here. And, um, you know, some crazy ass shit went down and, you know, obviously COVID was a really difficult period. So, you know, it, it was a nice, on the other hand, it was, it was nice to have that much time to really like focus on the compositions and kind of mold and remold. I definitely came back to it a few times. I thought I had something and then I would redo it a little bit. And, and so, um, you know, but the, but the, but the pre-production was the same thing. You know, I wrote a lot of them and, um, and then I got everybody together and, uh, you know, we just vibed and, and rehearsed for a few days before we went to the studio. We go to a, it's a place called Kaleidoscope in New Jersey, and um, it's a great studio, and you could see everyone while you're recording, and you know, uh, just uh, really nice to uh, to be able to do it and keep churning them out, man. It was number fifteen. Are there are there any that you you look back on and you uh, you forget that you recorded them? <laughs> no, not at all. And the fun <laughs> thing is, I still like to listen to them, and and you know, I've had so many different permutations in the band that like a lot of the records have a different personality because they're different, you know, different players. Yeah. So the band, the band through, you know, went through a lot of evolutions, but you know, I kind of dig them all. So that I'm happy about that. I'm really happy about because, you know, I'm not like, Oh damn, how could I put that one out? You know? <laughs> yeah. Is the evolution of the band largely dictated by that, by the, the changing lineup or is it more about where you're at? Huh? That's interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's kind of like my drummer, Yao Dunazulu once said to me, he said, Freddie, as long as you're in a band, remember one thing, it will change. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it got me used to the idea, like, you know, like, um, you, you know, everybody brings something to the table and, you know, they all make it special, but you know, each one is different. So, you know, uh, depending upon who's, who's in at the time, it's going to, you know, affect um, what it's like. But I, I suppose also, since I'm sort of like the main person that they're vibing off of, then, you know, I got to groove with each one of these people. So, um, I mean, they have to groove with the whole band, of course, but in particular, they got to groove with me. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of give and take, especially the the type of music you're playing and the way you do it. Yeah, you know, it's 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 hard to find players that are really versed in the ska and the jazz in the way that I really like to play it and that, you know, kind of have this I, I really like have this rock and roll mentality when we're on the stage. So, you know, it's I, it's it's hard to find those kind of people. And when I find them, you know, I want to keep them. And then when I have them, 
I don't want them to leave, but you know, all kinds of things happen in life, you know, so it's just the way it goes. So getting into your early history, um, you went to East Meadow High School in New York, right? Yeah, that's right. Do you study jazz in high school? I did. There was the, the great music department there. We had a couple of jazz bands. There was a guy named Bill Katz. He was like an incredible educator. Mike Carubia, Rod Tibbetts, all these like real good musicians. And quite a few good musicians have come out of the school. Um, this guy named Tommy Breckline, who was playing with Chick Corea. Mm. And uh, play play with everybody. And uh, one one of my first teachers, Steve Greenfield, he used to play with Cool in the Gang and Deodata and all kinds of people. So you know, it was like a it was a pretty fertile high school to come out of. A lot of great musicians. Was saxophone your primary instrument in high school? Uh, I I started out as a clarinet player early on, and uh, probably didn't start the sax until seventh or eighth grade. But, um, you know, once I kind of and then I picked up the flute maybe around eighth or ninth grade. But then then the sax kind of just really became like my voice um, by like 10th, 11th grade. That was the one I really enjoyed playing. You didn't see a lot of future in playing the clarinet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to study with this guy, Eddie Daniels, um, who's a saxophonist, also flautist, but like master, master clarinet player. And um you know, I mean, there. you know, it's certainly got its spots. You know, I sure. still play the clarinet. I've had some students and stuff. It's definitely not my main acts, but, you know, I like the voice It it in, in like the really old school jazzy stuff. Yeah. It's really nice yeah. to hear it. it. It's nice to hear it. Yeah. But that clarinet to saxophone player pipeline is real. <laughs> I mean, I feel, I feel like that's a, that's a common trope. Start on the clarinet and end up on the saxophone. Well, I mean, you know, there's just no comparison in terms of modern music that the saxophone has sure. uh, a much, uh, you know, uh, a freer voice, a rockier voice, yeah. a jazzier voice. I mean, all these kind of things. So, you know, um, uh, <laughs> it's cooler. It's cooler. It's, yo, the sax players get the chicks, bro. <laughs> hey, clarinets used to be cool, though, a long time ago. Hey, so did harpsichords, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. I remember because I, I was I was in high school, I was in band in junior high and then early high school. I played drums and um like a, a a clarinet section in like a junior high band can be oh my god, could be pretty punishing. <laughs> yeah, well, intonation, but I think the string Strings have it worse. I think the strings have it worse. Mm, definitely. If you listen to some like big band stuff, when there's like a clarinet section, sounds amazing. Yeah. Oh um, yeah, it's yeah. a great voice. I mean, there's no doubt. You know, it's it's like everything has its place, and if done, you know, properly and with like you know poise, the shit's gonna kill it. Oh, so, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You studied the the flute, the classical flute in college. Um, I didn't really study it. I mean, I studied it in college. Um, I didn't formally study it, but I was like, you know, studying with like, uh, yeah, I was really, you know, at that point I was, I was playing with Stanley Jordan, the guitarist. And, um, and I was considering like, Oh, do I want to try to be in a symphony? And so I was, you know, studying with a guy from the New York Philharmonic. I took a, a lesson with Julius Baker and, you know, I was really deep into the classical, but you know, it was just like too much. Um, it really wasn't my calling. You know, I really love to improvise. 
So, you know, that ultimately took over. And so you, you were uh, like a freelance musician for a while, right? Um, yep. like after college, were you primarily, did you primarily think of yourself as a jazz player or were you, did you have a, a different way you looked at it? Yeah. You know, it's kind of weird. Cause I was around New York and it was like, I had just stopped playing with Stanley and I was back and it was like, all right, I gotta, you know, make my career and all this stuff. And I would go to these jazz jams and stuff. And it just, it just was like sort of a turnoff, to be honest with you. It felt like a lot of these cats had this attitude, like if you don't play jazz, you're inferior. And, you know, that's not the way I felt about it. And I was really digging on all kinds of music. And, you know, I would go to a rock jam and like, they'd be playing a stone song and like a, a sax player would come up and play bebop. And I'd be like, Yo, man, you got to respect the genre. Like each genre is in particular has its own like aesthetic and you got to like dig it. You know what I mean? Like a rock sax mm -hmm. player versus a, a pop or whatever. And so, you know, the jazz scene in New York at that time was kind of like turning me off. And that's why the sky, you know, when I found the sky, I really was happy. I was at that point, like playing blues, playing original bands, you know, doing whatever I could to make money, playing weddings, whatever. I was playing a lot of piano too. I used to play dance classes just to, you know, get some more bread on piano. Did it start with you with uh, the New York citizens? Was that your first ska gig? That was my first ska gig. Yeah. So what happened? Did you, um, did they, did they have an ad or something? How did, how did you get connected with them? I was connected with another band I was playing with out in Long Island called the Underdogs. And the bass player had a friend named Dave Mullen. Dave Mullen is a great saxophone player in New York now. He's like, uh, goes to New Orleans a lot. He's got all kinds of stuff going. Anyway, he was playing with them and he couldn't do the gig. And he was like, he knew I was itching to like get on the road. And he said, you want to sub? And I was like, absolutely. When the band heard about, you know, him not being able to do it, they didn't want the sub because they figured, eh, you know, a guy can't just come in and, you know, do the gig. So I did my homework and I like really learned their shit. I made a little cheap, you know, Jeep sheet, whatever. And on the <laughs> gig, I, they ended up letting me do the gig and I rocked the gig. So um, and we might have been opening up for the toasters on that gig. So that's how I met Bucket. And that started the connection there. So, um, yeah. So that's how I started with the uh, with the New York Citizens. It was uh, it was cool. And then I started doing you know gigs when Dave couldn't do it, and 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 um, and eventually either from that first gig with the Toasters or you know one of the others, they were friends with him, and they said, "Look, Freddie really wants to get on the road," and that's how I eventually hooked up with him. How long do you think you played with New York Citizens before you were in the Toasters? Oh man, I don't know. Maybe not that long, really. Six months, a year. Okay. So your to your toasters, I think, uh, starts in nineteen ninety two. Yeah, man, you got you got your facts right. Very yeah. good. <laughs> I want to see. Let's see. I, I know you played on New York Fever, right? I played on New York Fever. I. You want to hear the crazy thing? I played a piano on a track of New York Fever. Oh, what song? Really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd have to look on the record. I don't remember which one, but yeah. I play on New York Fever. I played on uh, Dub 56. I played on Weekend in L.A. I played on Don't Let the Bastards Grind You Down. I played on Hard Band for Dead. And then I played on a bunch of other kind of, you know, 
there was like Christmas scars and all different kinds of <laughs> compilations. Well, we'll get into this in a little bit, but uh, you formed the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble during this time. Did you come and go with the Toasters, or were you sort of always in the Toasters during this period, and you were also doing your own band? Well, you know, what was crazy too, dude, was that I was also starting to play with the Ska Floors a lot at this point. So I was definitely a Ska horn player, because between the three <laughs> bands, I was working like at least five nights, six nights a week. It was awesome. Um, but I mean, you know, it was a, it was a diplomatic thing. You know, I just started the band and, you know, Rick and I kind of didn't even really at first think we were going to play live. We just knew that, that since Buck had the label, we could probably get the record out. And then when we got that first show, we played at the Manhattan center with the Scatolites and a bunch of other bands. Our first show, we played for 1500 people. I just got the bug and it became my, raison de etra if it will and i really took it as it became you know my band that i really you know wanted to keep going and going but of course you know we had to be cool there were tours you had to say you were going or not going so most like mostly it was like probably at the beginning i tried to go in and out of toaster stores and then eventually you know i'd get too good a gig and it would overlap and you know it'd be like sorry i can't do the next one and then it got a little weird, but you know, that's just the way it goes sometimes in bands. I have yeah. to deal with the same shit as a band leader where somebody gets a high paying gig and they can't go. And, you know, it's just kind of comes with the territory, you know, fortunately or unfortunately. So do you prefer to be the band leader over the, uh, the player? Great question. I mean, <laughs> I've been the band, I've, I've been the band leader for a long time. So, I mean, on one level I'm spoiled Cause it's kind of like I'm King in a way, you know, at least in, my, in, in, in my little world, in my little world. But then on the other hand, it's just such a pain in the ass to always have to worry about all the shit. And you're always trying to take care of everyone and you always want everyone to be happy. It's so much easier to just show up with my horn and play. So, you know, it's a, t it's, it's, it's a 50, 50, because on the other hand, when I'm in front of like five or 10,000 people and they're singing like, my songs, whether it's a vocal or an instrumental, you know, like sometimes they'll sing take five or whatever they'll sing. It's like, damn, you know, I never thought I would have gotten to this point and I'm very thankful. So, you know, in those moments, I'm hell yeah, I'm glad I'm the band leader, <laughs> uh, you know, but right now where I got to worry about plane tickets and this and all that. And, you know, even if you have managers and stuff, it's still a lot rides where you have to kind of, make sure everything works. And, you know, I've been doing it so long. I, I got to say, I'm a little tired of that, but you know, you know, if you want to play, you got to deal with certain things. Can you describe what toasters were like when you joined? Cause the, the toasters is a band that has like gone through a lot of people and their identity, their, their um, personalities shifts along with the lineup. And I think there's, there's, there's points where the toasters are on fire amazing band there's points where they're kind of not they're kind of not right there yet you know i kind of view the toasters in that light like it's kind of a it's a roller coaster their history what was the toasters when you joined like i mean it was definitely edgy it was definitely like they had lost some you know guys that was right at, right after apparently lionel and the other guy had gotten some sort of record deal and left mm-hmm yeah, Unity 2, yes. Right, right. Unity 2, it just left, so they were a little pissed about that. It had the edge, um, 
you know, it was like Buck and Matt, and I'm trying to remember who the drummer was. Um, and then it was Sledge and me. And it was like what I'm always really kind of like psyched about and really feel good is that I joined in 92. And to be honest with you, it just kept going up and up and up until I left in around 99, 2000. And the other thing that I also think was really cool in my tenure was that eventually Sledge and I um, picked Rick to join us, Rick Faulkner on trombone. And then the three of us were in the band together for about six and a half years. So that horn section really solidified and got very tight and kicked ass. And so, you know, you know, in, at least in my time, the band kept getting better and better. There were changes in the chatters, but the basic rhythm section was probably when Jonathan McCain came back, he was the original drummer. You know, we were, it was on fire, man. It was really good. So Coley Ranks came in at some point after you joined, right? I think he might've been in before and then left. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly. I, I came in first, there was Cashew, there was Pablo D, there was Jack Ruby, and there was Cooley. Yeah. What was it like playing with Cooley? Cooley was a great front man, you know, really took, took it, took it. He's like a very dynamic cat, you know, he's the <laughs> only guy who's ever bumped into me on stage. So I have to watch him because he's wild out there. <laughs> so because it started getting crazy on those shows that they would like let so many people on the stage and it would be like mayhem, you know, 30 people would get on the stage and event. And after I got hit the first time, I was like, uh, I'm not, I'm going to go to the back. I can't take a chance with this shit, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, Cooley's Cooley's a great front man. I want to say I saw toasters. First time I saw toasters was probably when they were touring. Uh, New York Fever. So obviously you were in the band at that point. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was amazing. The band was on fire. Um, so, so tight, so much energy. I tell people like Buck used to say, if you're not playing, you should be running. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was like, you know, it's just like, oh, it was like this avalanche of energy, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I just dug up a review that was written in 94. I'm just going to, see if you remember anything about this probably not it was 1994 um you guys played in uh at zephyr club in salt lake city sure i remember me330 opened okay and the reviewer said that during your set there was some random hecklers during the audience during 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 your set uh no. <laughs> Do you remember anything about that show? I mean, I remember being in Salt Lake City. I remember being there. I don't remember the hecklers. I probably would typically want to like just, you know, um, not remember them and just make the least of it just because, you know, you know, when Paul Pauline Black. Oh, yeah, that was the band. Pauline Black was in New York playing at Tramps and people started breaking out. And and, you know, it was like. She got in the mic. She's like, this is our show. You're not <laughs> supposed to be doing that. <laughs> um, so the you, you mentioned it before, the, the Scott Vuvi tour. That's the tour in 1994. Scott Lights, The Selector, and Toasters, and then there was various opening acts, I think, right? Well, no. I think 93 was Toasters, Scott Lights, Special Beat, Special and Beat. Pauline's Band. Yeah, yeah. 
and selector. 94, I think, was toasters, pie tasters, scofflaws. Okay, so 90, 93, that's the one I'm thinking of, the, the first ska movie tour. Right. Um, this is an important tour in terms of like the kind of crowds that ska is bringing to U.S. markets. What do you remember about that? It was pretty packed rooms, generally speaking. Generally speaking, it was very good. Um, and, um, you know, the bands were really good. And it was great to be playing with, with like, other good bands. You know, makes the, each other play better. Um, and, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think it was mostly white kids. You know, it wasn't really a mixed racial audience. But um, um, I, I definitely remember it being, you know, for me, it was so much fun. I was hanging out with Tommy and Roland. We were on the bus. And, um, you know, it, it was really just great to be playing every night and getting to hear them play every night. Was that your first time meeting them or had you already gotten to know them? Because I know they were living in New York, right? Yeah, I mean, we probably did a few one-offs, but, you know, being on the bus with them, I mean, then we really got to be buddies. You know, Tommy and Roland used to call me their little white brother. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> you know, it was really fun. And Lester was there and it was, you know, um, and, and uh, you know, the it, it was just great. It was just great. Lloydy, both Lloydies, you know, Nib and Brevet were there. And, uh, you know, it really was like, it took me a while to, to be able to understand the Patois. Because it was me not going to leave the bus. <laughs> I've heard you say before that they kind of like stole the show every night. I mean, they were great. Yeah, you know, they did. They did. Because, you know, Roland could hardly like walk. He, he had like polio in one hand. And, you know, you'd see this old little guy, but then he'd get up on the stage and it was like a lion. You know, especially for me as a sax player. You know, these guys playing instrumental music bringing me to Jamaica every night. You know, I mean, all the bands were great, but, you know, they were very special. The influence for you starting the, the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble was because in part of how, how well they did and how well they were received. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and then we were like, you know, we can do this, but of course we want to do it with our own flavor and our own, and our own stuff mm -hmm. because we're not old Jamaican cats. You know, we're like mm -hmm. young dudes from New York. So, you know, we got to give it a different vibe. So um, before, before you start this project, so you're in the toasters, you're, you're playing with scofflaws. How did you think of yourself? Did you think of yourself as a jazz musician? And uh, did that conflict at all with playing with musicians in these bands who had no jazz training? Wow, man, that's funny. I mean, I never really think of myself so much as a jazz musician because I'm so influenced by like rock and pop and like all forms. I obviously love jazz, but I love them all. And, and I never was one of these like jazz, jazz guys. So um, there, there, there were moments where like, if we were on tour with some of these punk bands and the volume was just so loud and it didn't really seem like they were, you know, dealing with harmony, you know, that at times could be, you know, a little frustrating, but what I, kind of grew to learn and understand that like all these genres in the genre, there's going to be a couple that do it really well. So, you know, you, it not, it might not be your, like your thing, but if you listen to enough of them, you can just dis distinguish who can really play well. And with regard to like 
playing with players that maybe weren't schooled or what. I mean, it was a learning curve for me too, because like I was always used to like musical form. And so like, we'd be dealing with like a chatter and like maybe Pablo or whoever, even Cooley, any one of them. And, and, you know, it'd be like, okay, you're not coming in after four measures. You're coming in after he says, Yaman. <laughs> and so it was like, it was like a very different kind of aesthetic for me. And at first I didn't like it, but then, you know, everything makes you better and makes you a little more, you know, hip to the whole thing. And, you know, there are different, there are, you know, different things that make different things good. So, you know, you got to be open-minded. You can't just think, oh, it's got to be, you know, a minor seventh chord and you have to play the proper, you know, blah, blah, blah. Cause in the end there are musicians that don't even know anything about harmony. They just use their ears and their, in, their gut and they're fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, uh, earlier you were basically saying that you you disliked the uh, the jazz elitism sort of vibe. So I can yeah. see, you know, I mean, if you were already were turned off to that, it probably wouldn't be difficult to play with a a variety of inst- of musicians who are coming from a different place. Exactly, and plus, you know, I really love pop and rock music, and you listen to some of them, and they're like. You know, a lot of them are deep, man. They have great harmonies and incredible voices and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, um, uh, it doesn't have to be complicated to be good. And I think that one of the problems with um, any kind of elitism in music is that it becomes way too insular and too self-referential. And like, there's little room to grow because there's too much concern about form and like rules, I think. Agreed, Ben. Agreed. Agreed. You know, I think it's probably different now, but, you know, at that time in particular, I was like, yeah, this is not my bag, you know? So, so it was great that I found the ska. Mm -hmm. Um, So, okay. So walk us through the, the first New York ska jazz ensemble record. We've already established it's a side project. It's a thing that it's a recording project, essentially. Right. Right. So you and you and Rick Faulkner are the, the the originators of this concept, right? Correct. Correct. We're the leaders. We're the ones that said, hey, why don't we do it? Let's put together our quote unquote super band. You know, just invite all these guys from these different bands, the best guys that can play Scott and jazz. And um, pretty much all the first call guys we called all said, yeah, we're down. Let's do it. So, um, we found this studio in Jersey city. It was actually Lenny Kravitz's old studio and he had all the old tube amps and like he had one of the beetle boards and it was just this incredible studio. And, uh, you know, we did it kind of the way we, you know, do, do, do it, you know, still where the rhythm section recorded live, the horns are in a booth and you keep what you can. Were some of the players on that first record your 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 dream players, if you will, that you enlisted to be in this recording project? Right. Well, we had Jonathan McCain, who was our drummer from the Toasters, and then we had Victor Rice, who was playing bass with the Scofflaws, and then we had Carrie Brown on keyboards, and um, um, uh, and he was playing with the Scatolites and the Scofflaws. He was actually the musical director of the Scatolites. And then you had Devon James, who was the guitarist of the Scatolites at the time. So we kind of really, you know, interspersed the three bands. You covered a few jazz songs. Let's talk about those first, and then we'll talk about the originals. 
Thelonious Monk, I Mean You, and uh, Charles Mingus, a Haitian fight song. Can you talk about why you chose these songs? Well, I mean, I think Rick probably brought them. He might have, because he really had a deep jazz influence. I mean, it was all about like what we thought would go cool and work over the ska beat. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, uh, these two definitely work. In fact, I've been playing Haitian on my recent gigs and people still ask for it. It's just, you know, it's really interesting with the round, the horns going up, up against each other. And, you know, it's it, it the harmony is pretty basic. It stays in the one key for the most part, although when we solo, we kind of go to some minor blues thing. Um, but it's really a chance for each band member to kind of stretch out. And it just kind of seems to uh, really get that intoxicating ska beat. Like, you know, once you really get in that vibe, people kind of get lost in it and you can just, you know, solo away and everybody's just dancing crazy. And um, same thing with, I mean, you too, you know, we do that one pretty fast. It's definitely more on the hyper ska vibe. Yeah. The Haitian fight song is really fast. Yeah. (laughs) That one seems like uh, a level of fast that would be difficult to play. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it was kind of like, so the first, our first drummer was Jonathan McCain and he was coming out of the toaster's head and, and their attitude was like, well, you know, if you got an audience, if there's a choice between slowing down or speeding up, speed up, hype them out. (laughs) So, um, you know, and so, that that was my influence and I liked it. And I also kind of had this punk vibe for whatever reason growing up the way I did. And, and so like it really lent itself to some of the songs that I wrote like nasty by nature and arachnid, you know, like these really hyper skank skank real fast. And I used to tell the drummers, I used to tell the new drummers, just play it as fast as you could play it without slowing down. You know, like (laughs) just basically it can't be too fast because I love the hype. Now, when I got my new drummer, Yao Dinazulu, around 2000, the thing that made him so awesome was he showed me that not only can you rock the crowd by hyping them, but you could also rock the crowd by just grooving them real steady. And so then he brought this element of like, okay, uh, you know, I love hyping out the crowd, but then it's really nice to pull it back. And then the hype has a more distinction. You don't want to do everything crazy like that. So, um that was sort of interesting with the tempos, but yeah, man, I like playing that one fast. Did you and Rick like compose songs for this? How did that work? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, at the beginning, um, you know, it, it was like, kind of like he and I were co-producing it. So we, you know, we were probably the main writers. We, we definitely wanted the other guys to have their voices heard. They were, they were, you know, Revictor writes, Carrie writes, um, so we, you know, we thought it would be interesting to have their songs. So th- I think they both wrote on the first record as well. And typically, you know, it's kind of been a thing where the composer kind of has a vision, kind of writes it out, brings it in, and then the band molds it. But the composer typically kind of had, you know, the, the harmony, the, the bass line, or a lot of it before he brings it to the band. Were you a songwriter already before you started this project? Yeah, I used to do like um, in my early days when I was playing with Stanley, I came out of that. I used to do some, you know, I produced a few, you know, little record things and I was writing on those. Um, They were more like, um, I wouldn't say fusion-y funk, but, you know, it it had that element to it. So this was a little new then. The The whole thing was a little new for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
was it hard or was it like a, just a kind of a fun challenge? Maybe, maybe it felt low key since it was uh, just a recording project. I mean, I'm kind of like, no, actually that's not me. Unfortunately, I wish it were, but <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm kind of pretty intense person. And like, after we did that first gig and got the response we did, you know, I became Rocksteady Freddie of the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble. And I was like kind of selling the band, trying to book the band, making the band happen. You know, at that point, I really became the driving force of getting the band a lot of work. And, you know, that's the key to having a band, to be quite honest with you. So, um, you know, so uh, and I just loved, you know, being kind of up there in the front. It became eventually uh, you know, eventually I became the real front man of the band. And, you know, so it, it, it was always a lot of fun. I think, you know, it, what drove me was that I just enjoyed being on the stage with my band playing that music. It was always like, mm-hmm. you know, I felt like the players were great. I loved the songs. I got off on the music. People were dancing, you know, shows were getting bigger. We were playing in more cities, more places. I was able to get the first Euro tour in 96 that went really well. We were the first band to play in Poland after the wall came down. And, you know, as we're driving into Poland, we turn on the radio and it's a version of us playing Harlem Nocturne. You know, it was really, it was like lucky timing and I don't know, luck or, you know, we were working hard. I mean, I'd been at it for a long time and, you know, um, just, you know, good to put a lot of really good, talented people around me for sure. That show in Poland. First band to play after the wall comes down. Can you remember what the audience, what their reception to your performance was like? It's always like great because like they're so starved for entertainment. And we're, of course, very different. We're a horn band from New York. You know, we're kicking ass. So they're loving it. They're getting super drunk and everybody's really partying. There's like no real bathroom. I mean, it's it's just kind of mayhem craziness. It's probably like we played outside. It was like too cold to really play. So we're like out of tune, but nobody really cares. So, you know, it, it sort of was, you know, as a horn player, it was like frustrating when it gets too cold. You can't really play it properly. But at the same time, you're like, holy shit, we're in Poland. We're playing for like four or 500 people and they're loving it. So, you know, I'm not going to fight that. You called the band New York Ska Jazz Ensemble. That was Bucket's idea, right? The New York part of it? Yeah, that was his idea. He was like, you know, the record label's doing really well. Um, It's really, um, people associate, you know, coolness and all this vibe with New York. So I recommend keeping New York in the name. So I was like, okay. And then I came up, you know, with the rest. Did you come up with the the term Ska Jazz when you were trying to think of a name for the band or... Were you already thinking about that term as your genre? No, that's when I came up with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's good. I like, I like that. It's sort of like simple in a way. It's not like a, it's not a cute, bizarre name, but it, it tells you exactly what to expect. Well, what, that's the funniest thing. Like I'll go on interviews and they'll be like, what kind of music do you play? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, bro. Yeah, I'll break it down for you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but that must have worked well too for marketing the band, for building yourself up as a touring act. The, there was a lot in our favor. I was, you know, I was 
at the beginning, I was like kind of billing it as a super band made from members of the Toasters and the Scatolites and the Scofflaws. And, you know, that definitely helped, you know, put us up there. But then eventually it became like, we don't want to be known by that anymore. We want to be our own thing. And, you know, we don't want to, <laughs> you know, we want to stand on our own feet. So eventually that, of course, happened. And, you know, just like growing pains. But it it definitely helped boost us off the ground. We didn't start at the bottom. We you know, we definitely got a couple of rungs up and, and a lot of people knew me, you know, from touring with the toasters. So I made a lot of friends all along the way. And, you know, I was able to kind of, you know, connect in that way. Was it record sales that led to you playing your first show? The one you, you mentioned where it was opening for Scottalites in front of eight to 1500 people. Um, I think it just was like, we were, we were working on the record. We started in the end of 94 and then a show came up and I was, I don't remember exactly, but it was like, yeah, let's get on it. You know, they heard about us and I don't know how, I mean, everybody was sort of in- interconnected and everyone knew it was going down and we were working on the record and, 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 and somehow we got offered the show. And of course we took it. And then once we did that live show, then I was sold. Then I was like, you know what, this is really what I want to do. So, you know, it really became my like driving force for pretty much the rest of my life, which is kind of insane, but that's kind of the way I am. That's interesting because uh, you you hadn't even really considered it to be a full time project until until this show. Exactly. Yeah, must have been a good show. It was awesome, bro. <laughs> it was so much fun. You know, I mean, the other thing too is you got to understand as much as I love playing with the toasters, and in fact, I just played with them a couple well a couple months ago here in Denver. I played with them and. Um, you know, the role in the band, you know, there was a lot of playing, but with the ska jazz, you know, we were really getting to um, uh, uh, play out a lot and really play more. So as a saxophone player, it was so much fun to be in a more instrumental band at the time, you know. So th- this first tour you did, um, now I, I was I was reading that it was the singer for the Busters, the German ska band who uh, kind of helped hook you up with some of these shows. Yeah, that was Thomas Schultz. He had like a booking agency he was booking the toasters and then he helped book and then he booked us so yeah he booked that first tour that's right it was like uh what was it like 13 shows 12 in germany and one in poland and you know and then from that tour i was able to get like italy and switzerland and then you know like each tour we'd pick up more countries so what do you know the tally i i, I read somewhere 37 countries you've played is that is that the correct tally of countries? That is correct tally to this point. Correct. Are you looking to tax them on pretty soon here? <laughs> you know what? You know what? I, what I feel really bad about is, is that I got offered to play in Tunisia and we haven't played in Africa yet. And, you know, there's the famous jazz song night in Tunisia. And I've always like thought like, man, if I could bring the band to Africa now, that would be something. And I would really love to. And, and I got the gig and then like, Three or four months before we were going to go, there was that shooting on the beach and uh, Mm. the government said, don't go. And if you go, keep a low profile. And then my friends and my family, everyone's like, just don't go, bro. Don't go. Don't go. So that was one of the first times I like turned something down. But uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm always looking to play in more places. We haven't been to Australia. Surprisingly, we haven't played in Argentina um you know um we were supposed to and then something fell through um but you know in the end i i want to play for as many people as we can wherever they are 
you've toured Europe uh, 70 times at this point. Yeah, it's been, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. And in fact, we're, we're going in August again. So are you, are you bigger? Are you biggest in Europe than anywhere else? I'd say probably biggest in Mexico. Um, we play like really big shows there. We played at the um, sports palace. The last time it was like 10 to 20,000. So, wow. I mean, it was a ska fest with a bunch of other bands, but you know, we're, we're held in high esteem there and we're supposed to go back there in October. And then we have other places where we've done really well. Um, it just, it goes up and down. You know, I was thinking about it. We played for 10,000 in Prague back in the day. We played for like nine or 10,000 in Tokyo. I mean, it, it, it but I, I would say, yeah, our main fan base is probably Europe. Is there something about the, their understanding of jazz and ska? Do you, do you know what it is about Europe? I think part of it is that, um, well, you know, things are changing, but I used to say that, you know, in America, they're a little bit more worried about like um, image and, you know, sex appeal. And not that I'm, I mean, I am very sexy, of course, but you know what I'm saying? Like, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So let me understand. So, but you know, whereas in Europe, like they don't care what you look like. If you throw down, they don't care how old you are. If you throw down, they're going to give it up to you. So I think there's a little bit, you know, maybe more of that. Obviously, coming from New York, you know, that helps. Um, you know, they always like you more from places where you're not, you know, not from where you're from, I think. And um, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope to think that the ska jazz, since we really, you know, take our our instruments very seriously, you know, they're not used to hearing maybe that level and you know it really inspires them i don't i don't know i mean i i'm 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 feeling pretty confident everywhere now we we you know we're we're we've been at it a long time so you know i feel like you know we play at a pretty good level so no matter where we play people are going to recognize you know not not in any ego way but more like you know these are like men who dedicated their lives to playing music you know there aren't that many that do that you know what i mean so how how often do you tour the us then well, we haven't toured the U.S. in a while. The last thing I've done is just some New York gigs. We did some really nice gigs in New York recently. We played at the Iridium, which is this awesome jazz club on Broadway. We had our names up and lights in Broadway. That was really exciting. And then we played at the wine, uh, City Winery, which is another really major venue there. And, um, um, you know, the next real big thing is this Euro tour in August. You guys formed when ska was very popular in the U.S. Yeah. What was it like when that became, when ska became unpopular in the U.S.? How did that impact your band? I mean, because it's so different. Well, that's part of the reason I went to Europe because, you know, I used to have this thing like, I'm not going to pay them any less than that. And if I can't pay them that, we're not going to play. So then we would take fewer gigs, fewer gigs. And then before you know it, there's nothing. So it was like... um I kind of put my eggs in a Euro basket at that point. And I was like, all right, I'm going to really try to build it over there because the scene here in the States has kind of imploded. So, you know, it, it was definitely tough. You know, it, it used to be, you know, in the early days of the toasters and those in the nineties, late nineties, I mean, it was so booming and we'd be playing in New York at wetlands for 800 people, just a local gig, you know, and it was so much <laughs> fun and people were going nuts and, you know, it was it was just really great to be a part of it. But you know, I guess everything has its time, and so um, you know, for me at that point, I started thinking of it more as a world market. 
And I was like, all right, well, we just got to play somewhere where they're going to like us. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, it seems like it seems like you found you found a market in Europe where you could play consistently and it would be a beneficial place. Right, right, exactly. So why not do it? You know, I used to do I used to I used to go two to four times a year. There was one year I think I went seven times. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Were you were you playing mostly festivals? Were you headlining? What, what what's the what's the path you you built there? Uh well, you know, I mean when we're playing clubs, we're typically the headliner. And when we're playing festivals, we're sometimes the headliner, but depends on how big the festival is. Like we're playing reggae jam in Burzenbrook in August. And that's like with, you know, like all the Titans of the reggae world. So, um, you know, um, we won't be, um, we won't be the headliner. Um, so <laughs> it, it's, it's all good. You know, I mean, I, I'm just happy to be there. Um, you know, um, I've, we've done all different kinds of stuff in terms of like building it, um, you know, and through the years, you know, different places have, have been more beneficial than others for a while. We had our booking agent in Rennes. So we used to play in France all the time. Since we have different agent, we don't play there as much. You know, it's like, there are like different waves. I used to say like, you just got to find the wave and surf it. Like somewhere in the world, the sky is really pumping. So you just got to go there when it's like that. In the end, you got to build real fans and build a real fan base. So, you know, I think in Spain and Italy and all over Europe, we've kind of done that. You know, we've really trademarked the name. So they, they've they come, you know, I'll have like on the last tour, I'll have someone come. I'm, they're like, yo, dude, I saw you 20 years ago. I'm like, bro, <laughs> that's awesome. But please don't wait another 20. <laughs> <laughs> when you're playing these shows and when you're playing these festivals, are the bands the audiences is it more geared towards you know traditional ska jazz uh, do, do you know where you kind of fit in in these markets i mean you know i think it really as you well know from going to some of these things they all have their own sort of personalities and characters i'm sure reggae jam is more of a reggae based kind of festival so i might not do as much of the hyper ska you know, um, if we were in a club and it were like an older crowd, I might go more jazz and slow it down. Um, it really all depends. And then, you know, even going against that, you know, in the end, people just like they, they want you to do what you do. So you just do what you do. It's just music. And so either they dig it or they don't. And so, you know, you could try to label it and, you know, because like we're bringing in these days a lot, of, you know, we're bringing in funk and pop and rock and you know all this stuff through the set and so you know people that dig music are going to kind of find something to to groove on um if i see that it's like you know like in italy and spain the younger kids definitely want to mosh it up they want to go more hard so then i might throw in some of the faster ones because i know that's really what i perceive they want i think it is you know um and so i think um you know uh I typically will write a set, but, you know, if I really feel like the audience isn't vibing a certain way, I might audible it and just change it up right on the stage. I was reading that uh, your 2008 record, Step Forward, was your bestseller. Mm. 
Is that true? It, I, I, you know, I don't have numbers, 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 but yeah, it's, it's, it always seems to be the bestseller. Take five is kind of like our uh, signature song around the world. A lot of people know that one. Is there any reason behind why this album sort of took off? I mean, maybe it's that song. Was there, were you guys super active at that time? Mm, I mean, I had a Spanish producer do it. Um, so maybe he had a different color on it. Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't really know. I mean, I love all the records. So, you know, for me, it's like, um, they're all labor of love and there's really great stuff in all of them. I mean, I think like on the show, the one thing that might help sell that record is like, we, we typically always play that song in the set and it's like a, a really good, um, um, song for me to stretch out for the guitar player to stretch out. Now I do this back and forth thing with the drummer. So I think it really kind of like highlights a lot of like what it is that makes the Scotch jazz. And, you know, we get to really like burn and really, you know, kill it on that song. So I think just in general from the live shows, people are like, Oh, what is that one? I want that record. <laughs> you know, that, that's what happens, you know? Did that song and the record get publicity or was it just like from the show that it really became a favorite? I think from the show, really. I mean, we've had a lot of publicity through the years, all kinds of magazines and radios and some television and stuff. But, but I think, um, no, it's just more like people love that song. It's like such an old classic and older people, of course, know it via Dave Brubeck and you know the some of the purists might not dig it because they're like it's in five how could they do it in four but then you know other people are like oh it's a cool rendition and they vibe and they can dance to it so um you know it's just um you know it's uh it's uh and I used to play that one back in the day in college with Stanley so I've been playing that song for a long time <laughs> yeah could you could you speak on how you um took take five and, and turned it into a New York ska jazz ensemble piece. I mean, you know, I, it was sort of, I was playing with this guitar player, um, uh, Lee and we were playing, um, take five and it just, it just, it became a reggae vibe. You know, it just, we felt the reggae in the song and it was just like the horns and the, and the, and the way we reharmonized it, it became, you know, it, yeah, it just worked. I don't, I don't know what to say. It, it's just, we started playing it and it, it just felt right. It vibed the audience vibe with us. It was always really fun to play. I do, I do this back and forth thing with the drummer. So that was really fun because, you know, we're trying to kind of talk musically back and forth. I think that's very, you know, it's kind of fun. It's interesting. I think. You've obviously traveled the world many, many times. Um, then COVID hit. And you were unable to tour for a while. You had like before COVID, you didn't you have like a uh, Christmas ritual that you would do? Yeah, we were always in Europe. You know, we were always in Italy. It was we we call it Spaghetti Christmas, and um, you know we would always do a big Christmas tour. So yeah, that kind of you know had to get canceled a couple of times. So you always celebrated Christmas uh, in Italy. Yeah, yeah. Did you? Do anything specific for Christmas with you and the band? Well, what, what's been really fun recently, and I don't know if it's always been the case, but we've been playing with this guitar player, Simone um, uh, Amadeo, and he's from uh, Genoa. 
And so he's been the guitarist in Europe now for a number of years. And so um, his family graciously would invite us to their house. And so we kind of would always go to his house and have a Christmas dinner before the gig. (laughs) So it was really fun. We'd have the panettone afterward and the classic, uh, you know, classic Italian dinner with these like lovely people, you know, it made you less lonely that you weren't with your family. That's interesting. So after a number of years, I mean, this is this is just what Christmas becomes to you. Yeah, because you know what I always used to tell my daughter when I wasn't around would be like, look, you know, I'm sorry I'm not around for certain things, but we'll just do it on our own time. And so like, you know, we can make any day special. I'll, I'll be around, you know, like in certain ways I was around more because, you know, when I when I'm not on tour, sometimes I had more time for her. So, you know, it, it you know, sometimes it sucked, but you know, I'll tell you, I used to always do New Year's over there. And after doing it, like, you know, 10, 15 years, I was like, man, I'm tired of working on New Year's. I'm just going to stay back and hang with my friends. I did it one year. And even though it was cool, it wasn't that cool. It was kind of like, oh, <laughs> man, I'd rather be out there playing, making some money. And then I'll chill three day and nights later. You know, <laughs> what do I care? Did you have a specific uh, place you played every every New Year's or did that change? It changed. You know, it was usually Italy or Spain. Or uh, I think we did Switzerland. We, yeah, we, you know, once once we kind of, you know, had that that routine of coming, it was always like telling the agents, you know, we'll be there. Somebody find me New Year's, you know, that kind of thing. So what was it like uh, Christmas uh, 2020? Uh, you couldn't go to uh, Italy to have your Christmas dinner. Spaghetti Christmas. Spaghetti Christmas. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was like, you know, COVID sucked for everybody. I think it particularly sucked for musicians. You know, we, you know, we couldn't really, you know, I think what the world and society learned from COVID was that like, you know, we need, we need culture in our lives. Otherwise it's like a little boring, you know, if you can't get some other elements and influences in your life and you just have to stay in your house all the time, you know, we're, we're, we're social creatures. So, you know, um, it was hard and, you know, I probably drank more than I should have that night and hung out with my wife and, 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 um, you know, it was cool, but, um, you know, I, I had canceled, like, I don't know, man, the first tour, we probably canceled like 40 shows. And then, you know, we tried again during COVID and we had to cancel again. And, you know, I mean, I probably canceled 70, 80 shows. And so, you know, after a while, it just kind of got, it kind of got like, this sucks. And I just, I got to wait until I can really do it. So, um, you know, like everyone else, you know, what, what could we do? We had no choice. So you just had to grin and bear it, but you know, it sucked. And what really sucked more is that like a lot of those venues, well, not a lot, some of them just closed up and now, you know, they're not around anymore. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Were you able to do Spaghetti Christmas last year? No, you know, I kind of got out of the thing. Um, it, it It's definitely, um, you know, after doing it for so many years and then not doing it, um, the one thing is it, it just, uh, it, it just, the, the thing for me as the one that runs the whole thing is that I have to do it like four to at least like six months out. So like if I'm doing it, the two of them, I'm like always on. And I got to say that it was it was kind of nice chilling from it. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens this next go around. But 
I am excited. We got this, you know, this August tour and we're like, we got some very nice festival dates and then we got a big show in Mexico in October. So uh, I'll start figuring out the, the next move after that. You know, we'll, we probably think about another record soon too. So like a lot of people, it's like you, uh, you're like rebuilding your new rituals. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I'm, I mean, it's a different world. I don't know if you've, you know, in communication with a lot of musicians, it's definitely, you know, a different playing field. It seems a little harder, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I want to be out there. So, you know, you just got to keep going. So, um, but you, you kind of got to find, you know, other ways to, you know, we have, we have some nice side projects going right now. My bass player, Mark, who plays with the pretty reckless, um, he's, he's doing phenomenally well. He's been hooking us up. We've been doing these smooth jazz records. So I've been going to New York and doing some, some nice record dates and, you know, thankfully, you know, being able to pay the rent like that. How is it playing smooth jazz compared to, uh, playing, uh, ska jazz? You got to put like a harness on me, man. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> <laughs> Hold him back. You know, it's a different aesthetic. I, I mean, I dig it and I can be real pretty and that's all. And, you know, it's give them what they want. It's all good. But, you know, when I play the sky jazz, I, I kind of, you know, take an aggressive stance. That's just that's my nature. Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Scott, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Scott Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Scott now more than ever. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.